Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. But in this episode, there is no guest, and instead, we're looking back over the first year of Challenging Climate. And before we dive in, in the spirit of Christmas, we request our listeners to consider supporting us, which is something we do at the end of each episode, but we'll do this here at the beginning. And there's a few ways you can help us. You can, of course, subscribe. You can tell your friends. You can write reviews at Apple Podcasts or most of the other leading podcast platforms. And you can become a Patreon supporter and help us out with a few dollars or pounds or euros per month. And those costs can help us cover what we have to pay or our employers have to pay, such as our producer, Jillian, who has been remarkably helpful over the course of the last year. Yeah, a big thanks to Jillian. She's helped, well, she's made this possible. We wouldn't be able to keep this running without her, but we'd like to pay her. (laughs) So to dive in, uh, I thought that we could look at uh, what our intentions were when Pete and I started this podcast a year ago now. Yeah, so I, what I did was I, I copied down our podcast description. I just thought I'd, I'd read it out and check to see whether we're following in the spirit or, or even to the letter of what we wrote down. So here we go. Challenging climate. We ask tough questions about the science, technology and politics of climate change, which is an important issue. Uh, Every two weeks, we explore how we can fight global warming by cutting greenhouse gas emissions, carbon removal, adaptation of solar engineering, consider the roles of computer models and persuasive narratives, economics and public policy, renewable energy and national security in the climate debate, and look beyond to issues such as biotechnology and international development. So have we been fitting that description, do you think, Jesse? I think we've achieved what we set out to do, and I find that that description actually matches what we ended up doing, and I've not looked at that since writing it over a year ago. There's a couple of the items on the list that we haven't dived into yet, so I suppose not all the smaller boxes have been checked, but uh, I think it gives a good sense of our objective to look at the climate change problem from a broader perspective, to step back, to look at some of the edge issues within climate change, including how it overlaps with other related issues. Yeah, I think that's case. I mean, I think we have perhaps not done enough on the cutting greenhouse gas side and the renewable energy side. I think those are issues that are really important, but we haven't really got into in great depth yet. Yeah, I didn't want to do a podcast that was just sort of, you know, what's happened this week in climate, but I want to do something that was focused on on the bigger picture because, you know, working on this, you know, I, I say I'm a climate scientist, but I started off as a climate scientist and I've just been drawn more and more and more into the broader issue that is climate change because it isn't just about the science, it isn't just about the politics, it isn't just about economics or technology. All of these factors play a role in this issue because it's just so sprawling and complicated. I feel there's a whole set of tricky questions and interesting issues that are not often discussed or are difficult to discuss or controversial. And I think I wanted to do a podcast that would help people who are interested get up to speed on some of the technology issues, the science issues, 
but would also provide a space for me and, and for you and for, the, for our guests to sort of think through some of the tricky questions and some of the uncomfortable facts and ideas around climate change. And to circle back to something you said there, we haven't touched much on greenhouse gas emissions and emissions reduction policies. And we also haven't gotten to the details of what's happened this week. Before we started recording here, we were chatting about the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is a new U.S. law which aims, as its title says, to reduce inflation. But it does much more, including arguably being the most important U.S. climate legislation in many years. But personally, I've deprioritized those topics because so many others do it better than we would. And I think that our comparative advantage is what we have been doing, thinking about how might carbon dioxide removal fit in here? Is there a role for solar geoengineering? What's the relationship between climate change and biodiversity or economic development at a larger scale? So that's something I, I feel comfortable with. Something I've struggled with over the past year as we've worked on this podcast, as I look back on it, is, of course, what scope of perspectives and opinions to bring in. Now, of course, it's easy to say, well, of course, you should have as wide a scope as possible of perspectives so that you can foster dialogue and debate. But there are, of course, figures in any issue who come to the table with statements that aren't true, arguments that are internally inconsistent, or they act in ways that are arguably not quite good faith actors, you could say. So should we bring them on? And if we do, how confrontational should we be? And I still don't know what the right answer is to that. Because if someone were to say, uh, Pete, Jesse, you two downplay the severity of extreme climate risks. It really might be an existential crisis to humanity. And you need to give more airtime to the people who think that this really could pose extreme risks to people who are being born now. Well, sure, if we widen toward that perspective, one could also make the case that we should widen the perspective to those who say that climate change just isn't a big deal. Maybe we're paying too much attention to it. Maybe it should be a lower priority among policymakers who instead should prioritize economic growth and development as a way to improve human well-being. So I think we've done all right in that regard, but I think the case could be made that we should indeed go a bit wider in all directions. Pete, what's your take on this? Well, I mean, we did do we did do a bit of both of those things. It's not quite those extremes, but we did do a bit of both. Luke Kemp, Britt Ray on the kind of the more that there is these high end risks that uh, and there are things to worry about deeply. And then on the other side, we've had folks on who prioritize more or, or kind of emphasize the role of exposure and vulnerability and how development plays a really critical role in shaping that. I think the good faith and productive discussion are important elements to me because I I don't want to just get into a back and forth of like, I don't think that's true. And because we don't have all the evidence to hand as we're having these discussions, we can't rebut people on the fly. And, you know, if there's someone who I deeply disagree with, I don't want to come in too prepared and sort of ambush them <laughs> on our podcast with really cutting stuff. I, I think what we want to do or what I'd like to do is find people who we can have a constructive discussion on, a, on an issue and, and explore it with them give them room to sort of express their views. And, you know, maybe we should have a broader range of people. I mean, I think on the sort of social changes, the extent of economic changes, and some of the more radical side of stuff, we should do a bit more on that. And I think there's some important stuff to discuss there. 
But yeah, I, I don't want to have people on who are arguing in bad faith or who sort of are a bit who I suspect of being quite manipulative. And I don't want to just get into a bar name, a, a big fight with someone in our podcast. So we want to keep fairly constructive. And so far, I do think we've had a constructive year. Maybe we can spend some moment reflecting on a few of the episodes that we've broadcast, conversations we've had and recorded. Our first episode was quite exciting, not just because it was our first episode of our podcast, but because it was with a legendary fiction author. Kind of an interesting way to begin a podcast on climate change. But Neil Stevenson, science fiction writer and writer more generally of what you could call speculative fiction, was our first guest. And really, I think we had just an excellent conversation about the role of technology, not just in climate change, but throughout society, and how fiction can help us understand possible futures. It remains our most popular episode, interesting enough. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I think he was quite reflective. I mean, he he knows the limits and the constraints of fiction, you know, his story is set around a billionaire acting alone and more or less unbothered by the American government, which he said himself on the episode is a very unlikely scenario, but it's kind of an essential or like a, a solution to the narrative problems posed by trying to cover this issue. So yeah, there's some constraints and you know there's some restrictions that writing fiction places on you. You've got to have a place and a specific people are sort of changing the world or doing something big. But I think it also provides an opportunity to explore issues and parts of issues in ways that academic writing doesn't let you do. I think in an issue such as solar geoengineering, we're going to need to use a lot of imagination to figure it out and to understand the issues and think through the ethics and so on. And I think fiction potentially has a really big role to play. So it was great having Neil on to begin with and, and, and get into some of that. I also really enjoyed our second episode uh, with Holly Buck. Yeah, Holly's an academic who I really respect because I'm quite an interdisciplinary or you know generalist character myself. And on climate change, as I've sort of mentioned, it's one of these issues where there's you know there's some hard, complicated science, and climate science is particularly hard and complex and multifaceted. And then there's all these other disciplines and perspectives that need to be brought to bear to understand it, you know, economics and policy and so on. But I think in academia, there's often a bit of a divide between the, the scientists, the science side of the problem, and the socioeconomic, sociopolitical side, with experts sort of familiar with their own areas and their own ideas, but not really communicating across. And I think Holly is one of these social scientists who has a really deep understanding and kind of respect for the technical details of this issue. So, you know, she sort of thinks through the politics and how the world could change and how we might want to change it. But bearing in mind the constraints and the difficulties that come up from the technical side. So her book, To Do With Ending Fossil Fuels and Going Beyond Net Zero, thinking about what carbon dioxide removal opens up and how we might want to think about going beyond that to think about actually ending fossil fuels, was a really great book to read. And it was great to have that discussion with her. I think our next episode, I think it was episode three, was with Roger Pioca Jr., who it has been a controversial figure within the climate change community. And that was really, I think, on our minds as we went into this. Has he been treated fairly or unfairly? Has he been unjustly criticized for perspectives that are perhaps supported by the empirical evidence? And I came away from our conversation feeling that Pioca is for the most part, well, he's clearly contrarian. He disagrees a lot with the mainstream thinking. Whether that's something that motivates him or not, I, I can't speak to that. 
So I want to be careful with my words around calling him a contrarian. And I think at the end of the day, at least within the climate change scope of his work, I did come away from our conversation more sympathetic to him than when I entered. I think even when I disagree with where he goes, the evidence that he points to and his arguments are usually something that I think that the conversation would be enriched by taking seriously. Yeah, I think I think Roger is someone I first sort of heard of as the sort of list of climate deniers and, you know, enemies of climate progress. It's sort of this sense that there's certain people you shouldn't listen to because they're bad and wrong. And then I started reading some of his ideas and thoughts and tweets and so on. And I'm like, you know, a lot of the points he's making or most of the points he's making are robust. They're based on the evidence and they make a lot of sense. And some of them are quite inconvenient to if you're aiming to push rapid change on emissions cut. The story is more complicated than sort of a one-dimensional thing. So, yeah, it's great having him on and seeing some of the treatment he got at the hand of his opponents. It was also great. Another episode fairly early on, we had Gavin Schmidt on, and he is a climate communicator and climate scientist, or a climate scientist first, who is an amazing climate communicator. Yeah, I thought this would be fun to, you know, seeing as he's been in this field for a long time, I set this up as kind of a way to run through the history of detecting and attributing climate change and the, you know, the controversies and uncertainties that developed around the science of the core, the core science of climate change and knowing that we're the ones changing the system. And I think he just did a fantastic job. It's just a great episode showing a master communicator just getting his points across. <laughs> Perfect. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Pete and I have both been concerned by the type of communication within climate change that emphasizes catastrophe. That is sometimes on the boundary of, if not going beyond, the current best available science. And one area that we've had particular interest in is the ways in which such emphasis plays out on the way people think. I know I've met, and Pete, I imagine you have as well, people who follow climate change and are really concerned that the fate of humanity hangs in the balance when, although climate change should certainly be taken seriously, it poses really serious risks that are importantly unevenly distributed across the world, it's tough to characterize it as an existential threat. So we brought on Britt Ray, who wrote a book on climate anxiety. and. This, of all of our conversations, was one in which I found the most rewarding, even though, or perhaps because of the fact, that I really disagreed with a lot of Brit's conclusions about the way that science should be communicated. This is an issue that's been, I think, bothering me quite a lot this year, which is why it's come up a lot, is, is this doomism. And yeah, Brit's book, I, I think, ha it takes that we're really in very, very, very deep trouble as an assumption, and then tries to help walk people through coming to terms with that. And how can you live in a world that seems doomed or is nearly doomed? How can you be creative and productive and help to reduce the chances and also cope with that anxiety? And I guess I'm more optimistic about the outlook. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting discussion, though. An area that we've had another difficulty with is how to cover solar geoengineering. Solar geoengineering is a fairly obscure area in climate change that we're both experts on. And so we didn't want to just have this podcast be all about solar geoengineering. So we're, we've kept it to a minimum so far. But we had Wake Smith on covering his book, Pandora's Toolbox, which provides an overview of the issue um, and of climate change in general and the options to respond to it. 
And it was great having him on, but it was it felt slightly constraining because Wake, Jesse, and I have known each other for many years. So we, we were quite constrained by the fact that we didn't want to get slurped into a wormhole of deep geoengineering debate. And so I had to sort of do something a bit more general, which I think we all find a little challenging. Yeah, it's an area I think we want to get into more in future, but um, Wade's book is a fantastic introduction to the topic. And hopefully we gave our listeners also a good introduction to the issues. But yeah, it's something we want to get into in more depth. We're going to have to manage that and not, not go too far off the deep end and lose you all. Yeah, I do recommend Pandora's Toolbox by Wake as a really good introduction to how not just solar geoengineering, but how carbon removal could also play a role in climate change policies and responses. One of the big surprises to me was Nils Gilman, who I have come across, I think, primarily on Twitter, which is, of course, an interesting environment for various reasons. But he's something of an eclectic thinker who draws from a real diverse set of historical examples to pull together something that I would call compelling and interesting observations on climate and other politics. And one of the topics that we discussed, among a few others, just to give an example of this, is what he calls avocado politics, the prospect that something that is green on the outside, something that appears to be environmental, could have a brown core, and brown being a reference to fascism, that there has been an overlap that's surprising to many people between environmentalism and the far right. And that if we're not careful, strident environmentalism could open the door for far-right politics to get a hold on the political discourse and potentially even political power. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because the article when I read it a few years ago was, was a real eye-opener. That I think many of us presumed to some extent that as the world comes to take climate change seriously, they're going to adopt the policies that those of us who've been working on it, the approaches and ideas of those who've been working on it, they're going to adopt those and that's the way we're going to solve the problem or respond to the problem. But that's not necessarily the case. As the reality of climate change really settles, sets in and becomes completely undeniable, are political forces that lean towards the right, to the isolationist, to the nativist, are they going to take climate change seriously and come up with a very different kind of response? And I think they will. And it's a, it's a chilling thought. Interesting episode to get into. We've had a fairly consistent format throughout, two of us interviewing one guest, but we also did a couple of episodes where I did one myself and Jesse did another himself. And I really enjoyed the one I did with Kerry Emanuel. He's, a, he's an expert at tropical cyclones, and we get into all that. And I thought it was a great opportunity. One of these areas of climate science that I know a bit about, so it's great to kind of try and structure a conversation and try and make sure I can help bring the listener up to speed with what this expert thinks and correct my own mistakes as well. And one of the things he said, I think surprised me was, he said that the tropical cyclone index, you know, the category five, should be completely discarded and ignored because it's completely misleading because that measures wind strength. And it's not wind strength that kills you or kills people. It's the storm surge. So that's a function of the wind speed, but also the direction and the path of the hurricane. And so what he recommended we all do or forecasters do and the public get more familiar with is forecasts of storm surge height. That's the thing that gets you. And that was a really, that's something I hadn't really realized before and was interesting. Another thing that I took away was he was pretty clear that there are going to be far fewer deaths from hurricanes in the future than there was in the past. Hurricanes used to kill sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. That won't happen in the future. 
But the higher sea levels and the more intense storms to some extent and the more rainy storms will lead to more property damage. There'll be more flooding and more losses of dollars and property, but fewer losses of lives because we're better prepared, better warned than we were in the past. Yeah, so that was a really interesting episode. And uh, I really enjoyed our last episode. I think the last one that we published was with Patrick Brown, which I think we discussed a lot of things that I'd kind of gradually come to the same conclusion on as, as Patrick, the climate change, the change in the climate increases the hazards that we face in the world. But absolutely crucial to the impacts that we feel is how exposed and vulnerable populations are to those hazards. And just how significant the changes in exposure and vulnerability have been. They, in many places, dwarf the changes that are due to climate change. So, you know, there's places in which, we talked about this a little, that, you know, changes in building practices have led to substantially more people in floodplains and more exposure to flood risk. That's potentially a doubling, quadrupling of the people exposed, whereas the actual increase in extent of flooding, which we expect in the future, is relatively modest compared to that change in the exposure. Yeah, we talked about other other kind of related issues that, you know, the scale of the changes we're seeing in some extremes is just not as large as people imagine. There's been a miscommunication, I think, about the nature of climate change that sees many people seeing extreme weather, all extreme weather, as evidence of climate change. When we know that in the past we've had really extreme weather events that killed hundreds of thousands or millions of people in some cases, and we'll have more weather like that in the future. And yeah, while climate change is making many of these things worse, there's still such a huge degree of variability in the system that many of these risks we're just going to have to learn to cope with. And working on our our vulnerabilities and and exposure is, is a key area that's often overlooked. So I think that was a really interesting discussion. What I found to be particularly rewarding is the episodes we've done that move to the edges of climate change into the broader issues of sustainability, technology, and human well-being. And three of these come to mind. We had Hannah Ritchie from Our World in Data, which is an excellent organization, an excellent website. I can't recommend the website enough. She's uh, turning out to be a, a very good writer. She has a substack now. I've read a few of her articles there and uh, recommend that as well. Talking about the real data behind the human trajectory, where we've been, where we are, and where we seem to be going. That includes, but isn't limited to, the influence of climate change. And we spoke to Elizabeth Colbert, a writer who writes books, but she is uh, regularly at The New Yorker where we discuss this broader category of ways in which humans intervene intentionally in Earth systems at large scales, sometimes for us, but sometimes and increasingly for proposals to help facilitate sustainability itself, which can be sort of an idea that can seem a bit contradictory to intervene in nature in order to protect nature. And we spoke uh, along those lines with Ben Novak, who works at uh, Revive and Restore, which, among other things, seeks to use biotechnology for conservation purposes, including the possibility of de-extinction. So I found that trio of episodes to help put climate change and climate change technologies uh, in a wider context. That's been a sampling of some of our favorite slash most interesting episodes of the year. Uh, We've got three more in the can coming up. Um, We have Andrew Revkin, famous climate journalist, possibly the longest serving climate journalist. He wasn't quite willing to take the crown on terms of most words written on climate change, but he's certainly written a lot. And so it's great to have him on. 
And yeah, really interesting discussion. We also had Daniel Harrison on. He is leading some work on ideas for marine cloud brightening, ideas to make clouds over marine areas more reflective, specifically for the purpose of saving the Great Barrier Reef. And this is a project that has actually done some initial field tests and is receiving, you know, it's a big project. And that's one of the many schemes under consideration by the Australian government because the prospects for the Great Barrier Reef are so poor. So that's a, an interesting discussion. And then we also had Erica Thompson, whose recent book, Escape from Model Land, talks about the, the role, the important role that models play in, well, all, all aspects of policy and um, some of the challenges and biases that appear as you try and apply these to the real world. And that's what escaping model land means. How do you get out of the model and back into the real world to say sensible things about it? So yeah, there's some more episodes coming up. And yeah, had a pretty full year. So I guess looking back at it, what makes for a good episode? We've had 25 of them now. What are some things that work well? I think most of the credit must go to the guests. We've had a really great set of guests. I've always been impressed by our guests' knowledge and the diversity of topics and views that we've managed to assemble over our first 25 episodes. So it, it's tough to point to any single episode and say, well, you know, we can do this right or that type of person is right. But I think collectively, something that I think we've aimed for, and I got to say I'm a little proud of, that we've done it fairly successfully, is a type of complementarity across the episodes. Yeah. And sort of a selfish perspective, I think some of for some of the episodes, the reading I did to get ready for them, I picked up some great ideas, some really interesting thoughts. Hopefully we got those across in the episode themselves. But um, I mean, doing the reading, there was some great, great stuff and great ideas that our guests have. But I think having a, an interesting theme, we've had some that are sort of themed around big ideas of our guests or around, you know, big topics, big questions. Yeah. And I think also us being well prepared helps things go a little more smoothly. <laughs> we work with a script. And I think there's a balance to be made between, you know, having it all worked out in advance and being flexible. And we're, we're, we're learning, but I think we're getting things to work fairly well. <laughs> I think rough outline might be a better characterization of what we come into more than a script. Yeah, I think that's where we've got to. And I think that also works a lot better. Uh, that flexibility is important. And as we look to the future of challenging climate, we're open to suggestions of guest topics and guests. You can find us on Twitter at ChalClimate and send us an email info at challengingclimate.org. We're open to your suggestions, of course, and a number of themes that we've touched upon in the first year, I think, will be coming back. One of which is what's the prospect of staying within our goals for climate change, specifically for global warming? Around COP27, uh, that's the Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the annual gathering in November or December that took place in Egypt this year. It was about a month ago. There was much talk about, is 1.5 degrees still alive? That's the more ambitious side of the Paris Agreement targets. And it looks, on the one hand, very difficult, not physically impossible, but extremely difficult and arguably almost impossible from a policy perspective to stay within 1.5C. But there was an argument made that I'm increasingly convinced by that it can remain something of a useful fiction, that the goal helps motivate individuals, countries, 
and other actors around an ambitious goal. That was something of our topic with Lynn Peters and Linda Stegg. Highly recommend that listeners find the cover article in The Economist from a few weeks ago that came out around November 7th, I believe, on the 1.5 target. So I suspect we'll touch back on that topic in the upcoming year. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's it's an area where I think people get a little funny in the climate community because it's, you know, future emissions are something that are to some extent or largely in our control. Like it's something that policymakers could do something about. We all individually could do something about. And so we can change it. But then there's the question of what's likely to happen. And, and I think this kind of what's possible and if we all try what we could achieve and how wonderful it would be on the one hand and what's likely given the nature of the world and our flaws and limitations. It's a difficult one to navigate. And I think, yeah, I want to get back more into that because I think, you know, privately, when people do these surveys of climate experts, they find people thinking the world is going to warm up an awful lot. Like we're on track for two and a half, three Celsius seems to be pretty much a consensus. But if you ask people, is is one and a half Celsius dead? There's very few people willing to say that it is. So there seems to be a bit of a clash between expert judgments and the dream and whether, yes, keeping this dream alive is the thing to do. It's an interesting issue. Another thing we talked a lot about is this sort of climate alarmism or pragmatism. And I think that's something we covered pretty well in our first year. You know, we, we talked a lot about climate doom. We had people talking about quite extreme cases of potential impact. And we had people talking quite pragmatically about development, what can be done, the scale of the threat. But yeah, I think there are some areas that I want to drill into, get a better understanding of myself. Because I think, you know, while I'm fairly optimistic overall about the prospects of us reducing our vulnerability to climate change and eventually cutting our emissions and coping, cutting back the change, I think there's some particular climate impacts that I don't know enough about, but I'm pretty concerned about. So I think agricultural impacts, like just to what extent, you know, would the world be producing more food more efficiently in the future? Or will climate change or other things catch up with us and really curtail what's possible? And relatedly, there's this the threat of multi-breadbasket failure. This idea that you could have extreme events that, say, knock over the Ukrainian-Russian harvest and the Chinese harvest. Such an event, you know, how likely is it? What would be the consequences? I think this is something that I, I do worry about as a potential impact of, of weather slash climate change. And there's others. I mean, sea level rise. There's a great deal of uncertainty about just how much sea level will rise. There's a lot of deep uncertainties in Antarctica and so on. But I think one of the areas that I don't know enough about, and I'm, again, quite worried about, is the impact on cities. Yeah, there's big cities around the world that are highly, highly exposed to sea level rise. Now, some places are geographically, you know, you can build a a wall or you can put up a gate to keep the sea out. And other places, it's simply impossible. And I just I don't know what's going to happen to those cities that are very, very exposed. And, and what would be the consequences? Will people abandon them? I've heard talk of Jakarta being abandoned because of flooding risks. And what would be the knock-on consequences economically around the world? That's one I'm interested in. And another one I really want to get into more is impacts in the tropics. Um, I think that's the part of the world that is most exposed to the impacts of climate change. And yeah, it's an area that I don't know enough about. How far can we push the climate system before ecosystems and societies start to um, really, really struggle? So yeah, these are some of the things I want to get into more in the future as we sort of think about the the risks of climate change and just how bad they could be. I'll second your point on sea level rise in cities. And Jakarta in particular is a place where I've been keeping an eye out on expected impacts. It's a very interesting case because most of their exposure comes from the fact that the city is sinking. 
Not that the sea level is rising, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn about climate change. Quite the contrary. It's something of problems that low-lying coastal cities will face sped up. We can watch how the city is responding by building barrier protections, but they are, in fact, also building a new capital city hundreds of kilometers away, not just because of the sea level rise, but also Jakarta is a crowded city and it could benefit by a little bit less pressure in that sense. Well, and, that, and that's the thing. I mean, I think it's critical that climate impacts aren't just a function of climate change. They're a function of human development. And so places where you doubled, tripled, quadrupled population in short order, you've put massive strain on the water resources, you're drawing out the groundwater. These have big repercussions that can really increase your exposure to weather extremes and climate change. So yeah, I think that's something I want to, I want to drill into some more of these tricky examples and, and get my head around them and help our listeners too. Earlier on, I said that we've deprioritized emissions and emissions cuts, but I do think that this is something we, we should return to. Speaking as the resident of the European Union, among the two of us, there's been some very interesting developments there, and it appears that the EU has is on track to approve not just major reforms to its ETS, the emissions trading system, but to propose an adjustment tax. Part of the problem with strict carbon policies, with strict greenhouse gas emissions policies, is leakage. If you impose an economic disincentive to emit greenhouse gases within your own country, then uh, you may push economic activity to countries with weaker policies and then just import the products. And so the response has been, well, what about a border tax? That uh, products that come into a region could be taxed for their carbon content or the emissions they produced abroad. And the EU finally proposed one just this last week. I'm very curious about the way in which this was crafted in order to be consistent with trade law, international trade law, because it could very easily become a trade barrier in disguise. So that might be uh, something that I'd like to dive into. And also this year has seen enormous progress in attention to and support of carbon removal, a diverse array of technologies to remove greenhouse gases particularly carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere and store it, whether it's in through a sort of industrial process and storing it in some sort of a reservoir underground or in building materials or through natural or quasi-natural processes that rely on biomass. And I'm curious whether this attention and increased investment is paying off, whether there's genuine progress in how the technologies are developing and understood and scaling up. Or is it a lot of hot air? So those are two topics uh, that I hope to dive into in the upcoming year. And I think we should also do a little bit more on solar geoengineering. Yeah, this is a topic, as I said, we both work on this. There's a lot to figure out and a lot to talk about on this issue. But the question would be how to chop it up. It's a tricky one because it's, it's, it's an issue that a cursory introduction to it leaves everyone with a whole list of questions and a whole list of worries and concerns which may have answers, but the answers to those concerns may take quite a lot of work to, and quite a lot of imagination to, to come up with. So I think there's various things that we could get into on that. I haven't quite worked how to cut up that particular pie. Well, I think the two challenges with solar geoengineering, one you, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about Wake Smith, 
is that because this is an area where you and I have been active for so long, the conversation might quickly get down into the tall grass, down into the weeds of details that I'm unsure whether the typical listener would find engaging. The other challenging aspect of solar geoengineering is certainly over on the policy and the politics, but even within the the scientific community, it's a polarized topic. And Pete and I have our opinions, and they're and they're they're not too far off from one another. And of course, these are opinions that we're comfortable holding, and we can defend. And you can say, well, on the one hand, we want to have more guests, but we don't want to become an echo chamber. But then there's the question about how to engage constructively with people with whom we disagree quite strongly in a polarized context, while still remaining the hosts of a conversation and not debaters because that's not the format we seek. Well, I think maybe on that, one thing we're thinking about doing more of that might be a solution to that is to have multiple guests on at once. We had Ben Peters and Linda Steg on to discuss that, or we framed it around the question of, is 1.5 Celsius still alive? And I think it was a, I think this is a format that we're going to use more, which is to have two complementary guests with related or, or different expertises, but with a common interest in a problem. And discuss that problem in some detail. So, I mean, Jesse and I are both quite generalists, but get on a couple of different experts on a topic and drill into it. I think that might be essentially one of the solutions to the geoengineering question for us (laughs) anyway. But it's also something we want to get into more in the future. because I think there's a lot of issues where the questions are really, really complicated. And if you bring on one expert, they're going to have one particular perspective, one particular take, and it might not be reflective of the full scope of the problem, the full character of it. And so I think having multiple guests who can give complementary approaches, not, I don't, we don't want to get into, yeah, a sort of pro and con climate change. Uh, it's not a problem. Yes, it is. You know, these kind of debates, but have a constructive discussion between people with uh, interestingly different perspectives, I think is something we want to do more of in the future. And the podcast over the last year, of course, has benefited and requires a listening audience. So we thank our listeners both occasional and repeat listeners. We wish you all a wonderful holiday season, a Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, and Happy New Year as we go into 2023. We look forward to more episodes in the new year. See you there. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challenging climate.